This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again, Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome back, everybody. This is Sirius XM's Bay Area Ventures, as usual, broadcasting live here from the campus of Wharton San Francisco. I'm your host, Doug Collum. I'm here along with my co-host, Irina Yen. And for those of you just tuning in, our show is about the world of entrepreneurship, startups, and venture capital in the San Francisco Bay Area. And today we're tackling the issue of leadership. Right. So we have, uh, we're being joined now by Paul Whitke, who's the CEO and co-founder of the Alliance of CEOs. So the first hour in the program, we were mm. talking with uh, the CEO and co-founder of a company that offers one-on-one coaching Mm -hmm. for not just executives, but for employees throughout the organization. This is a completely different business model. The Alliance of CEOs is very different. And uh, Paul, thanks for joining us. It's nice to have you on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So maybe you can just uh, to level set with the people who are listening in. What is it that the Alliance of CEOs, what is it and what does it do? Well, the Alliance is pretty simple. We have about 300 leaders of companies throughout uh, Northern California that that we bring them together in, and create very safe, confidential environments where they can talk very openly, very candidly about some of their most sensitive, most strategic challenges and opportunities in ways they really can't do anywhere else. So I, I thought what we would do for our conversation this hour is really kind of divide it up into three three pieces, Paul. The first piece would be you know, the alliance is itself is a is an organization. It's a business. It has a business model. It has a strategy. It has marketing, outreach, and so forth. That's the first part. We'll jump into that. And you're the you're the long pole in the tent for that one. Mm-hmm. Then the second part will be um, more a deeper dive on what it is that members of the alliance get out of get out of that association. How it works. Right. What the format is. Uh, in learnings that you've witnessed just in the course of the time that the Alliance has been going. And then the third piece will be, I mean, you you occupy, Paul, a unique perch because, in effect, you have the opportunity to study human nature as you have not just managed the Alliance, but also you sit in on a lot of the meetings with, with this organization. So you get the chance to get get to know CEOs and the executives as a persona. So with that breakdown, let's start with the first piece, which is about you. So what is it, what, what's, what's the process that brought you to the Bay Area and brought you to found this thing called the Alliance of CEOs? Well, first of all, it doesn't take a genius to uh, understand why I came to the Bay Area. I, I grew up in Chicago, went to University of Illinois, And coming out of college, one of many interview trips I took was to the Bay Area. And I scheduled it for the Friday before spring break Mm -hmm. and uh, asked the, uh, it was National Semiconductor I interviewed with, and asked them if I might uh, just keep their car for a week. (laughs) They said yes, and so I went, drove north, I drove south, explored San Francisco, explored, explored the whole area, and I just said, why would anybody want to live anywhere else? Well, so spring break became spring like forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, however, I did take a year. I did join Dow Chemical back at their headquarters back in Michigan first because my soon-to-be wife 
my fiance at that time was uh, was a year behind me in school. And but we made it out here 40 years ago in 1977, and uh, never looked back. Right. Never looked back. I've been asked to move several times in my career, and each time I started a company or an organization just to stay in the Bay Area. Hmm. I mean, after, I remember. So last week, Irina was not able to make it, but we had um, a guest on the program who actually did a deliberate survey of companies throughout the United States. And after probably looking at 10 to 12 different geographies, made a deliberate decision to move to the Bay Area. And at the end of that discussion, he had the same reaction. There was no reason ever to look back. I mean, one of the reasons I raise this is simply because for this program, we do tend to focus on Bay Area companies. companies. And so I'm always intrigued by what it is that holds people here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I think it started with the obvious. I liked skiing, and skiing in uh, Tahoe is a whole lot different from skiing in Midwest, in Chicago, in Wisconsin. <laughs> right, right. I love mountains, uh, and I loved outdoors, so Bay Area was obvious. But once we got here, the whole culture is, is so different. We still have wonderful friends we see every year in the Midwest. Midwest has wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but out here... There's so it's so diverse and it's so open that you can meet people of all types. You can you can do so many different things. Uh, it's just an amazing place. We are blessed to be able to to live here. Mm-hmm. So jump into jump into um, the alliance. So I mean, you you had some starts and stops along the way, and then eventually there was an idea that came to you, which is. Why don't we form this thing called the Alliance of CEOs? But maybe there was a precursor to that. Yeah, how'd you come to found it? Yeah. I'm not sure what the stops are you're referring to, <laughs> but uh, had, had a uh, serendipitous career for 20 years in the in the process industries and uh, oil and chemical. And then uh, I joined a major French company called Air Liquide in 1983. Spent a lot longer with them than I imagined because each time I got bored, they gave me more responsibility and more responsibility. And the chain of events that caused me to start the Alliance in 1996 really started about 1991 when the chairman and of the parent company in France thought our U.S. subsidiary should be making more money. We had mm-hmm. built Air Liquide built America to over a billion dollars through a ton of acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we weren't making as much money as the international operations. Mm. So he named me uh, uh, head of strategy. And uh, we didn't have one at the time, so nobody knew what that was, including myself. Uh, And we put together a a team of executives throughout the company and brainstormed to figure out how do we make more money. And I I won't bore your listeners with all the details, but it was a very impactful, very amazing time. I learned a lot, worked with some wonderful people. And we really did make a difference. But early on in the process, I could see that this was the beginning of the end for me at that company. Because five years before, we bought a company that did a half a billion dollars of business in the Gulf Coast, and they were headquartered in Houston. Mm -hmm. And as we were reorganizing the company, one of our core philosophies was we need to be more customer and market-driven rather than product and Mm technology-driven. And at the heart, industrial gases is more of a chemical company. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can't shut down. And we had never merged the executive teams, one executive team in Houston, one in San Francisco. 
you can't shut down Houston and move to San Francisco without, without proving you're corporate hypocrites. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was going to be Houston. And Houston has some wonderful people, but I never want to live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The humidity, the, the, the yeah. weather, it's not San Francisco. Yep. So the last step in any kind of reorganization, once you've figured out the global strategy, then you realign the business structure. The last step is who's going to run what. Right. So all the other executives were jockeying for position for the big jobs. We happened to have a little healthcare company. Didn't even show up on the bottom line. But this is back when Hillary Clinton's doing her health care initiative and managed yeah. care was coming right. into yeah. the industry. So I took a quick look at our, our health care company. And the first thing I noticed was they only did business on the West Coast. So I thought to myself and said, "That's good. this yeah. doesn't make What's sense to run this one out of Texas. So I volunteered to run health care. Nobody ga- cared about that. So they all moved to Houston. I took over the health care company. And shortly after, I was asked to join a group of CEOs who led healthcare companies. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I've always been someone that is, you know, I've always tried to surround myself with people smarter than myself who I can learn from. Right. And, and, and so this is an opportunity that, that I didn't care if the meetings were boring. I needed to meet these people. I need to get up speed on oh, healthcare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to the first meeting. It was a beautiful boardroom, probably right around here where you're over with a beautiful view of the San Francisco Bay and the Bay Bridge. And there was eight folks sitting around the table. They're all smarter than me. And it was like being back in business school doing Wharton case studies, <laughs> high-level strategic uh, challenges. But there was no politics. Totally open, totally candid. It was so much fun. This is this group of CEOs. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I went home that night and told my wife, I said, I would love to do this every day. Hmm. It was stimulating. It was challenging. It was, it was strategic. And it's always easier to run somebody else's company than your own. Right. And so now we, I didn't do it immediately because my wife gave me a piece of advice. She said, well, we had two small kids at the time. So she said, well, don't be stupid. Right. <laughs> Great advice. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't quit tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Have a plan. So in 1996, we sold the company. We had packed it up. We had made some acquisitions, grew it, put in systems, and got it accredited by the healthcare organizations. Uh, but it wasn't core, so we sold it. They asked me to go to Houston again. I said, no, thank you, and start up the alliance. And one of the core philosophies of the alliance is the value of diversity mm. from every angle, different industries, different business models, different skill sets, different ways of thinking, more cognitive right. diversity. So you can bring different perspectives to the discussion or any issues that the CEO is experiencing or, or um, having trouble with. Yes. So, so that was the foundational That was story. the genesis of the alliance as it is today. So um, maybe just in the way of kind of giving us a high-level snapshot of the company, what, what is the current status of the alliance in terms of size, in terms of numbers of members, in terms of uh, infrastructure support and so forth? Well, we're very simple. I mean, it's, I hate to even call it a business. It's really much more of a community, uh, you know, but we have 300 members. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in uh, 24 different private groups uh, that the core of the alliance is really a carefully curated group of individual leaders who uh, they need to trust each other 
so they can talk totally candidly mm -hmm. about some of the most sensitive things that uh, that arise or they're on their mind or else it really doesn't do any bring the value anywhere near that we wish to create uh they need to respect each other and then we try to maximize diversity we want we consciously want people thinking differently to challenge the very basic assumptions similar to if a ceo takes over a new company, kind of like uh, Lou Gerstner came from Nabisco and took over IBM, a totally different company. He asked questions for months about what they did, what the customers valued, right. why they did things, and so forth before he really developed his, his core strategy. Mm -hmm. And so when you bring diverse CEOs together from different industries with different models in their head and different experiences, they naturally question and we, we, we don't ask them to solve the problem. We ask them to really put themselves and their minds in that seat of actually leading that other company. Mm -hmm. And by their, so they're forced to challenge the very basic assumptions that that, uh, that company is based on. So how does it work? So there's 300 members you'd mentioned. What's like, is there a, um, like a, a targeted size of group that you now know is optimal for each of these CEOs to, to, to create a safe environment, to be able to address the issues that are top of mind? How does that work? And what's the business model? If I'm listening, I'm like, wow, you know, I could definitely, you know, would want to be a part of a group like this. How does that work? So I guess the first is what's the optimal group size that one can expect if they're in it? And then what's the business model? Well, the normal group size is plus or minus a few, about 12. Mm -hmm. uh, our members average about two-thirds. They, they, we always want our members to be extremely disappointed if they can't make their group meeting and be with their group that day. Oh, two-thirds in attendance. Two-thirds in attendance. Okay. But they're all CEOs. Right. So they have really critical things happening, whether they have to close their next financing round or complete a merger or or sometimes their uh, kids get sick. Right, right. You know, they're human beings as well. So we never want to cross that line into having them be guilty of, right. you know, feel guilty. So the ideal brainstorming size is really somewhere between five and ten. About seven or eight is about perfect, mm -hmm. where you have enough diversity and, diff and difference of opinion, but not so large that it's not intimate and really deep. Right. And so if you structure about 12, averaging about two-thirds, right. that's about perfect. And what's the frequency? Is it once a quarter, once a month? Or what have you found? Or is it just, to your point, you, you set a date and it's whoever can make it? You know, Well, it's both. The ma majority of our, our, mem our groups meet on a monthly basis for half a day mm -hmm. for five hours uh, oh. uh, each month mm -hmm. on a similar rhythm so they can actually plan it on their schedules because right. uh, if, if it's not on their schedules, you know, the toughest thing is to get the same people in the same room at the same time. They're so busy. Right. So, But if it's on their calendars, if they believe in it, and if it's on their calendars in advance, they do their best to schedule around it. Mm -hmm. However, we're not a slave to structure. Uh, we have groups that meet on a quarterly basis, just like boards, mm -hmm. where some of our large uh, our CEOs who led uh, some of the largest companies uh, came to me oh, about 10 years ago and said, boy, I love the alliance. We love our group, but I find myself traveling to Europe and Asia mm -hmm. far more frequently, and I'm having a hard time being regular. Got it. So we brainstormed a little bit, and we came up with a, a customized structure that, uh, similar to a board, we survey their calendars, and they find dates that work for virtually all of them. And, uh, and it's, more about, it. it's more about bringing the group together right. than about being a slave to a calendar. Mm -hmm. So let me offer some, some contrasting counter structures to get your reaction, Paul. So one is we just had as our first guest a business model that was premised e effectively one-to-one -one executive coaching. 
So that's one where you get a very, it's a, it's a relationship that builds, it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's repetitive contact between the employee and the coach. And then the other business model, uh, which is true of every company, is the board of directors. You have the CEO who's surrounded by, you know, with with some good fortune and some deliberation, surrounded by people who are diverse. You have investors, you have outside directors, you have employees, and so forth. What What is it about the alliance that offers, what's, what's unique about the structure that you're talking about, which is a, a group of people who are not not in your normal uh, range of experience. Right. Uh, well, first of all, boards, at least for public and, and investor-backed companies, are, are necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, and many, if not most, of our members have coaches individually. We all need, can improve and, and want to improve. But one of the special natures of the alliance is that all the people in this group are unbiased. They have no connection direct connection or financial connection to the to each other other than through this group so this is a place when you go to a board the ceo isn't going to ask well what do you guys think we ought to do mm -hmm. <laughs> right they come with a plan and you know and a well thought out structured uh, proposal a vision a strategy and here's our objectives and they they're willing to be openly debated but they have They've already put their plan in place, and 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 they get hired and fired by the board. Right. Particularly, I, I so it's not truly yeah. an, an un, unfettered environment. No, I mean many of our, our one of our very first groups was mostly public company CEOs, and many of them would use it as kind of a sounding board prior to the mm -hmm. to their board meeting, because they knew they would get totally honest, brutal feedback from their their fellow CEOs. And they'd be able to identify any any uh, potholes or any any gaps in their thinking, and really fine tune their thinking. So even if they didn't change their strategy, they became far more confident mm -hmm. about the about the uh, uh, you know the the wisdom of their strategy. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Paul Whitkay of the Alliance of CEOs, and he's talking about the organization. We're inquiring about how does it work and. One of the things, Paul, you mentioned that the optimal size of the group you found was, say, up to 12, but, you know, if two-thirds show up, seven to eight, and still can get kind of a meaty, a substantive discussion and, and vulnerable and get some learnings out of it. How, how does it work from a membership standpoint? Does one, you know, some organizations like this, because it's CEOs, some public company CEOs, is it from, um, like, nomination? Do people reach out to you and say, Paul, you know, I'd really like, I've heard about the alliance. I'd like, I think I could benefit from it. How does that work? Well, members come into the alliance from all different ways. Mm. Many of them are referred by current members who know them and believe they'd be a good fit. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them, we just go out and reach out to the ones that we believe would be good fits. And, and we meet every single member before they're invited to become part of the alliance. Got it. It's, so it's a two-way street. Two you're yeah, you're interviewing like with people. Yes. And what's the duration of a membership? Is it just ongoing, that sort of thing? Or is it, do you, have you found there's some, like, it's all, you know, this is my group and it's my group forever, my secret sauce, if you will, or is it kind of membership-based, like, you know, f six months membership or a year or what have you? Well, first of all, we have no contracts with our members, so we don't want anybody wasting their time. If they're not getting value from it, they can leave at any time. Mm -hmm. That being said, we have members that have been around for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, you know, the, they don't, they're in the right group. They don't leave. Mm -hmm. Even if we've had members that have run ten different companies during their tenure in the alliance, 
that being said, time is extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. So it's it really becomes, uh, you know, it goes beyond the meeting, the meeting experience where they're actually generating fresh ideas and really fine-tuning things. But, but getting to the point where they actually really trust those other people and those other members. Mm-hmm. And once they built those relationships, far more happens outside the meetings than just inside. Right. Inside, the meetings themselves are the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they... Fortunately, stay for a long time. But this is, first of all, the nature of being a CEO is somewhat of a dynamic position. And in Bay Area, even more dynamic because things are changing so so quickly. Mm-hmm. So they have, you know, those, uh, uh, it's not as uh, easy to find people that run the same company for 40 years, like back in the, uh, the uh, last Millennial. So I wonder if I can come back to a comment you made about the importance of diversity. And I note, I note that um, there have been several studies that have come out recently, especially through Wharton, just in my research here, noting that, in fact, groups that are have diverse members, diverse right. in terms of background, experience, ethnicity, right. and so forth, actually tend to make better decisions. Right. But diversity at some level starts, I would guess, would start to become... Um, Maybe it's a different issue, but the question is one of curation. You said there are 24 groups. Each group is comprised of diverse members, however you define diversity. But nevertheless, I mean, how do you achieve the sense that you're, it's really a peer-to-peer dynamic within the group? I mean, if you have you know, the CEO of a, of a raw startup who's sitting next to the CEO of a Fortune 200 company, I would think there's an imbalance there that would impede conversation or real a real sense of um, value add. I mean, how do, do you do you curate? Long question: Do you curate curate the groups? Yes, we do. We yeah. we spend a, a lot of time thinking about who would be the right fit because you. Uh, but it's not based on pure object numbers like what their revenues are, or how many employees. It really comes down to. Are they are they going to be able to intellectually spar with each other? Where they where they respect each other? Uh, so it's experience often, level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Experience? Sometimes experience, but but frankly, uh, one example I use: I, I did not uh, meet Larry Page or Sergey uh, before, as they were founding Google. But just the fact that people I've talked to who knew them back then, they would probably have been welcome in a very experienced group of CEOs who really want to know how the world was going to be changing because. Uh, they had some brilliant ideas and ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's more about it's do they have respect for something? It's not just the size of their companies. It's more of the, the do I respect the way they think? And that's hard to judge, but you can see it pretty immediately when, when the exchange happens. Uh, and I found that in the very first group of, of, uh, of Alliance CEOs I put together, which included not only different industries from steel and chemicals and paper to enterprise software and biotech and interactive television, very diverse companies. But beyond that, the diversity ranged from a company of 4,000 people to one with only two. Mm. We had zero revenues to $1.5 billion. All uh, within the same group. All within the same group. We had two Harvard MBAs, one Stanford MBA, and one with a high school education. So it really was, did they and, respect and that, each that other? that worked out well, right. yeah. Yes. I mean, the, they all brought something really different to the table that that 
other people could say, wow, I'm in the group with that person. I'm really learning this or that. Uh, and the diversity itself, it can get too extreme. Right. If you take somebody, a, a, a 20-year-old kid in college doing a tech startup uh, along with an experienced Fortune 500 public CEO, and... You know, it generally doesn't. It, they don't generally don't fit. Right. right. Yeah. What, what yeah. are some interesting things that you've learned or you observed? I mean, in it's interesting. It's like the conscious is a diverse population of CEOs in the group, and yet, you know, there may be some pattern recognition, common themes that are uncovered in those discussions. And um, what kind of problems are frequently or typically get raised by the CEOs? And how have you seen that change over the twenty-two years? That, you know, that you've been uh, in part involved in these type of groups. Uh, that's a good question. I, I think the the majority of the questions haven't changed that much because mm-hmm. because uh, I haven't met a CEO yet over the age of about 22 that was 100.0% confident that they had their strategy nailed. Mm-hmm. So strategy? So strategic positioning, competitive mm-hmm. positioning, product market fit. Do I have the right pricing model, revenue model? Do I have the right leadership team? If I do now, will I have it in the future? Succession planning, exit strategy, acquisitions. Should I be growing faster? Should I be slowing down growth? Should I be more focused? Should I be more diversified? Right. Uh, those basic questions right. are always there. There's there's part left brain analytical uh, decisions to be made, and there's a lot of intuition and right brain timing and intuition and doing the right thing at the right time. Right. How do you communicate it? Um, you know, so many questions there that are the same now as they were before. It's just the world has begun to accelerate so fast. Mm-hmm. It is changing it faster and faster and mm-hmm. faster. Now, I will say one one uh, challenge that uh, virtually every Bay Area CEO has is talent. These days. Just hiring, finding right? talent. It's so much more difficult than it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Just because uh, of competing the competition. Right. Yeah. Yes. And the cost, yeah. So I wonder if... Um, I mean, this is maybe too too nuanced, but the question is, there are 300 people in this organization, and one of the questions, I mean, I want to take advantage of the opportunity that you represent by being here, which is that you have, over the last, what, 22 years, had a chance to sit and observe CEOs as human beings and how they respond to different kinds of strategic or challenging situations. And one, the question that comes to mind is, are the people who join the alliance, by definition, different than, than people who don't join? And this isn't a pitch for, this, for the alliance. It's more a question of, do you find that people who seek this kind of format of diversity, of trust, of um, you know, an atmosphere of unvarnished comment but constructive comment, are they different than CEOs who choose not to seek that out? Is that does that make sense? Other than being more intelligent, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, good question. Uh, I do think it, it is biased towards those CEOs and leaders who are willing to be open. If they're not comfortable being open in a one-on-one conversation with one of us before they join, they probably won't be comfortable being open with a group of eight or ten CEOs. Um, so if they're really private and, and close and unwilling to talk openly and be vulnerable, mm-hmm. then no, it, it doesn't work. It's 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 not right. Uh, do you I find do, people coming into in, into these groups? I mean, I assume that once people join up and they're and they're part of a group and they're they're 
there are people who, frankly, just don't get the, chem the required chemistry to be effective. I mean, do you find the need? Do some people kind of vote themselves off the island or they're voted off the island by <laughs> the group? I mean, this is maybe the wrong wording, but... It happens rarely because, frankly, that's why we meet people beforehand. Mm -hmm. The screening process. The screening process. And the fit, putting and if, the groups together. The fit. If, mm -hmm. if, yeah. if they're not willing to really engage and be open and candid about things both in their past and the amazing journey they've had or the experiences, why they founded other companies and how they failed and those things, we, we get to learn pretty well how open they are and how strategically they think and where they fit. So we really don't have that often somebody comes in you know, that doesn't fit for, for that reason. There are personalities that some are more uh, uh, more extrovert versus introvert and mm -hmm. take a little longer to warm mm -hmm. up, but that's just personality traits. It, frankly, when I founded the Alliance, one of the first things that really amazed me was how much the CEOs and particularly some of the ones running some of the biggest companies just wanted to be open about things and they found us as a place that they could trust to talk about things they really didn't talk about elsewhere. And uh, it's they want to talk. Mm -hmm. uh, it's but it needs to be a very very safe place where they know that there will be no unintended consequences. That they and this and this differs again. I'm just probing, but it differs in the sense that w when you're surrounded in a in a closed, safe, if you will, it's a bad word, but a safe setting. Um, with your peers, you can have some fairly unvarnished open comments. Is that, and that differs. I mean, one question I always ask guests when they're co-founders and CEOs of companies is, you know, who do you turn to when you're stuck with a really tough situation? Some people respond, I go to my spouse. Mm -hmm. Some people say, I've got a great board member who makes himself or herself available after hours and we can talk through things in an open way. But this is different. This is this is people who are peers from different backgrounds. I mean, maybe you can just offer your your thoughts about that. Is it it truly is a value add to people who are looking for that kind of insight? Well, I don't think they'd do it if it wasn't. But um, first of all, I would hope that they have those type of relationships where they can talk to their spouse about it, uh, that they can talk to a or or their board about it. But beyond, sometimes they can't. But the spouse is typically not a CEO, and if they are, uh, they don't have a, a. They only have one life of experiences. Uh, the board does have their own, you know, biases, and so frankly, to to have a range of real CEO experiences, relevant from a variety of different aspects, whether it's in functional like marketing and finance and operations and IT and cybersecurity and communications and HR and everything or it's about doing acquisitions or mergers, or it's about individual investors, or just almost an infinite range of topics by having a really trusted cohort of people you really can trust and they trust you, and you know how they think. So in time, the, the richness of the, the relationship and the experience even gets deeper because now they've known you for a while and how you think and what drives you as a human being and what makes you passionate, what you're trying to achieve and what kind of impact you're having you know, on society and your family and your life, uh, it gets deeper. So and those are the relationships, you know, the intimacy you hopefully have with a spouse, but they're not the broad range of, of executive leadership experience. Yeah. And the board is never going to be quite that tight 
uh, because they do ultimately have to hire and fire the CEO. Or maybe not that supportive either, right? right. right. Sometimes. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with Irene Yen. Our guest this hour is Paul Whitke, the founder and CEO of the Alliance of CEOs. Um, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm your host, Doug Collum. I'm here along with uh, Irene Yen, your co-host. And our guest this hour is Paul Whitke, the founder and CEO of the Alliance of CEOs, which is a unique Bay Area organization comprised of about 300 CEOs and executives here in uh, the nine counties comprising the San Francisco Bay, Bay Area. So, Paul, I wanted to jump in. So, I mean, as you step back away from the trees and look at the forest, I mean, one thing that's um, would be interesting to comment on is different styles of leadership that that CEOs use. So, um, you know, in the course of your discussions with people, whether they are non-CEO executives or CEOs wrestling with the best way to effectively lead the organization, you know, you hear about these things. Some CEOs lead by fear and loathing, uh, and you can think of companies that, you know, in the press, you hear about them. Others lead by example. They are, you know, they set the tone. They, they show up at the office at 6 a.m. and they work until midnight. And then you've got people who are, um, you know, use financial or other types of incentives. I mean, I just, I'm curious, in the course of your, you know, rubbing shoulders with so many people who are doing these things, thoughts, comments, insights? Well, I've never believed there's only one optimum way of leadership. Uh, I've seen CEOs from from everything from the HP way of being very supportive and collaborative and and uh, nice to uh, almost very authoritarian, uh, dictatorial type, you know, classical Silicon Valley tech CEO sometimes. And frankly, both both can be effective or ineffective. Um, I, I believe that uh, um, they need to be. I believe they need to be who they are, authentic. Believe in authentic leadership, and some that have a more military style. That, as long as they're clear, that people come in with their eyes wide open, knowing what the culture is like. There are people that join those organizations. They like clarity. They like taking direction. They like structure. There's others who want far more open and creative and softer type cultures. Uh, I think more importantly is is having a compelling vision of what is the organization as a whole trying to accomplish and being as clear about that and as compelling as possible and hopefully open to ideas on what, you know, how to achieve those, those goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also believe in clarity. Uh, again, if it's a style thing or or culture, as long as it's clear, people make their own choices to whether they want to join the organization or not, and uh, or or leave the organization. Mm-hmm. So I think the ones that aren't clear, and they can be almost bipolar, where they change day to day, can be the most damaging. Right. Yeah. What about the different sectors that are represented? I mean, you, you mentioned diversity in terms of composition of the group, and through that, you know, common themes that emerge that all CEOs may be facing. But what can you talk about how the, you know, what are some of the trends or things that you've seen that seem interesting across the different industries that are represented in these groups? Well, I think the, the most interesting thing to me is, is that 
the the pace of change has accelerated so dramatically in just the last few years. When I found the Alliance in 96, I really did feel like the world was changing. The Internet was just coming around, emails and websites and Internet and it was just getting started, and it was, you know. Well, it was only 20 years ago. Right, I mean, yeah. it wasn't so long ago when right. all this was, this wave of change was was mm-hmm. crashing on the shore here. And it really felt like it was just a, a you know, world-changing transformation. And we went through two busts or two downturns in 2001 and right. 2008. Right. Uh, but it was basically just building the infrastructure and a new generation that was raised on digital technology and such that now... There isn't an industry I can think of that isn't impacted dramatically by by technology. And in every way, whether it's, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, you know, in, um, Internet of Things, genomics, um, it, it's just... Really, it's across right, the board. Right. Everywhere. And, and the moment, it was a few years ago when I was... I had an opportunity. I support a uh, an organization called uh, the uh, Directors Academy, founded by one of our members, to bring diversity onto public boards. And I had an opportunity to spend a few days with uh, uh, one of the faculty on the on the uh, Directors Academy. It was the longest tenured woman on the General Motors board, mm-hmm. and they had just bought Cruise for a billion dollars. Yep. And you know, in the automotive industry. Does at least in my past history, doesn't change quickly. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to bring a new platform for a new car together. And it became obvious that they were not just researching and developing, but they were start already planning to put cars on the road, not necessarily selling to you and me, but cars on the road in different cities and really moving quickly. And it was really because the auto industry wasn't being transformed by um, from the inside, it's from the outside, the Googles, the Ubers, the Apples, uh, that uh, the uh, the Teslas that were forcing them to move quicker because those companies moved quicker. Mm-hmm. And so you take that into almost every industry between healthcare and trans- and, and and even steel and chemicals and agriculture, food. I don't think I've seen a, an industry uh, that has changed from a low rate of of, tech, of transformation and innovation to a pretty a very high rate as fast as food there's innovation and in, from everything from the growing of food to the transportation of food to the preparation of food the distribution the of food the, the entire chain food the chain of food supply and and how we eat and drink uh, it's amazing mm-hmm. and that's every industry and and I'm just blessed I have the opportunity to get behind the scenes on so many of these innovative companies. So that leads to a corollary question, which is, I mean, first a prefatory note, which is you hear it said of Bay Area companies, and it may be just because I'm, you know, I'm sick of it. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm provincial. I, I only know the Bay Area. But you hear it said that there's enormous level of stress and that there's an intensity in the way uh, the, the performance metrics are such a such a, a high expectation in terms of companies to achieve cash flow positive and achieve profitability and then swing for the fences and be the next unicorn. And concomitant with that, you have this sense that there's you see you see more transitions, if you will. You see that the failure rates are higher and people are moving, changing jobs more frequently. 
again, this is kind of my own perception as I sit here in my little um, room here at Wharton. I mean, wh- what do you see? I mean, you've, you, you're out there talking to these executives, and they're the ones who are losing sleep at night, and they're the ones who are wondering if they're going to be able to meet the board's expectations. I mean, how do you see this? It comes back to the velocity of change and, and the corresponding stress that comes with that. Long question. I'll let you deal with it. Not quite sure how to answer that one. Yeah. First of all, stress is handled very differently. What, what some people perceive as a what would be a stressful situation is not at all the case for many of the entrepreneurs. I just, I just had lunch with an entrepreneur that uh, intentionally changed industries, came from cybersecurity most all his, his life, uh, and joined an orgs- a, uh, early stage company, very exciting in the industrial Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. He consciously wanted to do something that was impactful but different and would challenge him. He was getting bored in the in the old ecosystem. And he says it's got a 1% chance of, of success because of the, the enormity of the industry they're going after, the, mm-hmm. the size and scale of the competitors and such. Uh, very excited about what they're doing. It's a unique business model. So I think he's, but, uh, I, I think he's downplaying the, uh, the potential. Mm. But he doesn't appear stressed at all. He's doing what he loves. He's passionate about it. He's working toward making a difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to learn a lot. And, uh, and whether the company's successful or not, uh, he's, uh, he's striving towards making impact and feeling good about it. And, uh, you know, he's not the – he didn't invest all his money in the company. He, they've attracted $40 million of other people's money to fund the company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but stress is not necessarily staying the same. Stress can be uh, – well, we don't have a choice, I don't think. The world is changing at an accelerated pace, and I think those who are, uh, you know, are with companies that aren't really changing or are staying the same, they probably s- experience more stress and anxiety over being outperformed or disintermediated so than the me, people put, who are doing it. So let me put it a different way. What about... Um Sometimes an offshoot of that is fear fear of failure. What is your sense of of the um, you know in the Bay Area? It's said that failure is a great instructor, and people, it's like you haven't earned your stripes until you've failed a few mm-hmm. times before you move into your next company that is a success by whatever definition. I mean, do you have a sense? Do you have a sense for that in terms of? This this uh, this risk of failure amongst CEOs of the companies that are represented by the alliance. Yeah, I mean, I hate to generalize because there That's are okay, companies right? there are companies that are very stable yeah. and growing slowly and, and yeah. are wonderful companies and such. But the Bay Area is known for its innovation and and technology. Uh, and I'll I'll give you a couple examples, uh, but. It is one of the things I loved about the Bay Area, even coming here back in the the 90s, whether it's socially, commercially, or politically or otherwise, it just fosters a diverse, you know, range of opinions and ideas and people, and it's very open to different ways of thinking. Uh, I have a friend who uh, built an organization for CEOs in Europe, and uh, we've, you know, I've traveled over there, and some of their members have traveled over here, and... 
there's a very different culture in Europe where if you fail, you may never get funded again. And they really do have a fear of failure because culturally it's different. I've heard right. that. Come, yeah. I, yeah. Come, I grew up in the Midwest. It's similar there that uh, it's not as much uh, risk taking and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's changing. There's a lot of places around the world that are very innovative and great capitals of, of, of risk taking and more uh, people, places that want to be Silicon Valley like. Mm-hmm. But to my knowledge, there's still no place quite like the Bay Area. And that's one of the reasons I, I love it here. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Paul Whitkay of the Alliance of CEOs and talking about kind of some observations and working over the years with the Alliance and just in general, the backdrop. Um, what about your insights on the impact of this hyper growth that we've experienced in the, in, the, on, in the Bay Area in the number of years? You know, from the perspective just in general, like how um, we've read in the news recently how many families or workers are leaving the Bay Area because of the hyper growth, yet all of this hyper growth is fueling a lot of growth in the economy in general. What are some of your thoughts about that or insights, what you've observed? Well, it definitely is causing problems uh, for housing, for transportation. We, we can definitely see the, uh, when the economy, when jobs pick up, traffic gets worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like almost all the other, any other thing that's a problem, there are people out there working on it. One of our members has uh, helped launch uh, OnStar GM and has uh, been spent her career looking at big systems and uh, and she's working on the uh, on on how do we create better cities, transportation systems, and communities using the new technology and using you know and integrating all these things. That how do we right. rethink how we live right. and trans and and work. And and commute and and travel. Right. That was it recently needs to be on the, re- right, rethinking it. That so. was a proposition in the recent election, actually, in the area specifically about, for example, about you were mentioning um, about traffic. The congestion is one of the um, results of the impact of the hyper growth and how to solve that problem. So while it's a problem, this is a place where we can also try to solve it um, as a part of a. Yeah, no, just kind of a corollary to that, which is um, transitions, if you will, where you have CEOs. Changing positions or not or non CEO executives changing positions so over the twenty twenty two years that you've been running the alliance, has there been a change in the pace at which jo- uh, people are changing jobs? Have you any any observations on that? I mean, my own sense is that I, I have I have an insight on it, but I, it's your insight that counts. I'm curious about how you think about that. I'm not sure I've, I have enough statistically valid data okay. to Anecdotal comment on works it. Too. Right. But I will say that, uh, I mean, CEOs by nature are not as free to change as non-CEOs mm-hmm. because they do have a, a fiduciary responsibility, some commitments they've made at least um, for their integrity to to do their best for their shareholders and their employees and such. So if they're building something, they can't just wake up one morning and say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Any other non-CEO can do that a little bit much more easily. Mm -hmm. So uh, now, that being said, CEOs can be just as dynamic. They get hired and fired and uh, things fail or they get better ideas. But they they generally form, um, you know, well-designed programs to have somebody else take over if they want to leave. Mm-hmm. So for, for CEOs who are who do go through this change, where they, for whatever reason, life happens and they get merged, the company goes south or sideways, 
the board has a different a different idea on how the strategy should be unfold and so forth. Is there a support system or a support mechanic within the alliance where these folks have the ability to talk to other people going through a similar experience? Yeah, actually there is. I mean, first of all, within their own groups, they, they still talk. But uh, in the fall of 2008, for those who've been around uh, for 10 years, uh, we all remember when it was... The, the world adult, went crazy. The world went crazy <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, one of the venture capital firms had a logo of uh, R.I.P. Good Times, Rest in Peace, Good Times. <laughs> and uh, I, I vividly remember two of our members coming up to me and said, Paul, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to get our next round of funding. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for the first time in our lives, we have to go look for a job. And uh, said, you know, and they said, uh, gee, I, I bet there's a few other members of the alliance are going to have to do the same thing. Why don't you get us together? And I said, oh, that's a no-brainer. That makes sense. So we started getting together. So we we do actually have a a group. It's 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 not a permanent group by design, uh, but they meet monthly for uh, you know monthly just to talk about uh, executives in transition and sharing the strategies for finding the next thing. They've we've had some amazing successes just from that group. People have uh, a lot of you know they all go on to find jobs. Some of them directly through the connections they made through the their alliance group. Uh, other ones actually have met other execs in, the, in that program and uh, started companies. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, uh, and obviously on a human level, if nothing else, it's a support group to uh, help each other feel a little bit better and work their way through the system and uh, and find the next calling. And it's almost always something even more exciting than the last one. Right. And being a CEO sometimes so isolating. It's like a unique opportunity to find your own your people in a safe, as you say, environment to really talk about the issues and tackle the ones that are so difficult to otherwise deal with. So over the course of time, so I'm now reflecting back on 22 years, where, you know, from a standing start, you now have 300 members. um, If you were to dial forward five years, three years, I mean, where where do you see this this community going? Do you see it as being remaining as essentially a Bay Area community? Do you have aspirations to grow the organization? Maybe one in the Midwest. (laughs) Frankly, the organization itself has really grown me rather than vice versa. Yeah. It really has been member-driven. Almost everything that we've added or things wasn't a service I just brought to them. It was really created by members saying, gee, why don't you do this or we could use this. So we have different roundtables for for different purposes with different industries like life sciences, software, cybersecurity, or executives in transition and such. But it's always driven by the, the members. Uh, we do have members uh, that have taken their companies or moved to other parts of the country in Austin and Minneapolis, Detroit, New York, and such, and they always ask about they'd really love to bring the alliance there. But frankly, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy getting the right CEOs together at the same place, same time. So could our members bring us there or draw us there? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but frankly, for myself, it's all about the quality and the depth of the conversations and the people I, I get to deal with. And, uh, and frankly, uh, I think most academics say you can have deep relationships with or relationships with about 150 people. Mm-hmm. This is 300. Yeah. And I love them all. I learn from them all, whether they're running very small companies or sexy venture-backed companies or large public companies. They, I learn from every single one of them. And so I don't have a need to take it elsewhere. But if we're drawn elsewhere where it makes sense and, and people want us there, we'd be happy to. 
So we only have about a minute left, but I'm curious, how much time do you personally spend at this in terms of um, establishing the culture of this community? And is this, I mean, it's kind of a cliched question, but I'll ask it. Do you like what you're doing? <laughs> I love it. I have, when, when I started the Alliance, I looked back at my career before that, and although I did things I liked, I got bored every two years. Mm. I'm not good when I wake up in the morning thinking I know what I'm doing. With the Alliance, I'm, every day I'm meeting with CEOs doing some amazing things and technologies that I don't have a clue to really understand at any depth. But I have the opportunity to, to meet these people, get to know them as human beings, as leaders, understand their technologies, tour their, their, their facilities and their manufacturing plants, uh, and, and have some impact not only in their lives but making strategic connections among them. Uh, I, I'm just so excited every day to do uh, what I get to do, and I, it's, um, I wouldn't be doing anything else. I just love it. And you've got your fingers in every pot. Yeah. It sounds like you've got so many different connections involved. And I'm not a consultant, so nobody needs me to bring them deliverable. I just listen. I'm a provocateur to, to uh, help them think differently, and I hopefully help them by uh, introducing to other people that really push them either further and challenge their assumptions and challenge them to think differently and to uh, just help them you know, achieve their own vision and their own impact in life. We are out of time. Paul, thanks very much for joining yeah. us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so for people who want to learn more about the Alliance, they go to thealliancefceos.com. That gets That's it. a good way to do it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. If you've got a question about something you've heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Once again, special thanks to our guest today, Alexi Robichaud of Better Up and Paul Whitke of the Alliance of CEOs. Also thanks to our producer, Dana Cash, our assistant producer, Charlene Goto, and our engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Doug Collum with Irina Yen. You've been listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 